Hey, everybody, and welcome to the NFL Road Show. It's Lindsey Rhodes here with you, and I got to tell you, boy, it has been a week. You know how excited I am about training camps and how much I want to talk about the things that we're seeing out there on the field that have to do with football, but the way that the news cycle has gone this week, that feels kind of hard to do because there have been two huge decisions that have been handed down in the last couple of days. I'm recording this on Tuesday this week, and I feel like those stories are exactly the kind of stories that need to be discussed in this kind of long-form forum. The kind of stories that do not translate well to 280 characters that are nuanced and complicated and emotional and require more give and take and thought. And so those are the stories that we're going to talk about today. And hopefully you will find the conversation to be productive and informative. Um, I'm also hoping that there's um, something that feels familiar in the conversation to you that we hit upon some of the things that you're feeling and having a hard time articulating, uh, as I will have a hard time articulating some of my thoughts, and you'll hear that in the course of this conversation. Of course, I'm talking about the Deshaun Watson story in Cleveland and the tampering and tanking story in Miami. Quick recap for anyone who is not totally familiar with the basics of the stories. On Monday, the NFL's independent arbitrator, a former judge named Sue Robinson announced her findings in the Deshaun Watson sexual assault case and also her suggested punishment for him. In the findings, she makes clear that she believes the accusations that he sexually assaulted and harassed several women, that the accusations she believes are credible, and she suggests that he be suspended for six games this season as a result. The NFL does not have to accept that punishment. Roger Goodell could alter it. But for reasons we'll discuss in this podcast, that approach could be problematic. The other story that we'll discuss today came out on Tuesday on the heels of the Watson announcement, which of course came out on Monday. It also revealed results of an independent investigation, one that was led by a former U.S. attorney and SEC chairperson named Mary Jo White, who was looking into allegations of tampering and tanking with regard to the Miami Dolphins. She found that they did tamper with Tom Brady and Sean Payton, but that they did not tank. As a result, Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, has been fined $1.5 million. He's been sidelined for a period of time, and the club has lost two draft picks, a first-rounder this year in 2023 and a third-rounder in 2024. So those are the basics. Obviously, we're going to get into all of the details and also our reaction to them. Full disclosure, I am, as the Haslams would say, little bit triggered by both the decisions, and you will hear that in this podcast because my goal, as always, is to discuss subject matters like this with as much transparency as possible. And that is definitely an approach that my guest today takes as well. He is a highly respected journalist who has worked for Sports Illustrated, ESPN, and now works for NFL Media, which is where I met him and got to watch him work up close and gained an incredible amount of respect for the way he approaches his work. I can't think of anybody that I would rather have on to discuss these topics with today, and I'm confident that you will soon see why. So without further ado, let's get to that conversation. It's time to break the huddle with Jim Trotter. Hello, let's go! Two, one, two, one, two, ready? Jim, it's so good to see you. Um, it's always great to see you. 
Uh, I have to tell you, one of the things I like most about you, which I think sets the table for the conversation that we are unfortunately going to have today. um, One of the things I like most about you, both as a person and a journalist, is the way that you fearlessly attack subject matters. You give off a very strong vibe of please don't bring your bullshit this way. And (laughs) I not only relate to that, but also very much admire the way that you have found a way to weave that professionally into your work. I think that the word integrity is one that um, very much comes to mind when thinking of you. And in your case, in your role, specifically at NFL media, that often results in your speaking truth to power, whether that's asking Goodell about minority hiring practices and calling him out on his non-answers or tweeting as you did this week about the NFL's handling of the Deshaun Watson case, which was what I intended to start with today until the league, maybe purposefully, maybe not purposefully, blew that headline off the front page with a report about the Dolphins. Uh, Did you know that this was coming to a head this week? Did you have any kind of inkling that this uh, the findings of that particular report were about to come out? No. Well, first of all, let me say <clears throat> thank you for that introduction. It it um it means a lot and it means a lot coming from you. So I thank you for that. Secondly, no, I didn't know this was coming. I, I had been on vacation for three weeks and then I came back last week and then I was out of town for a family matter all week. So I'm just now starting to get back up to speed this week on everything that's going on. One of the things I did this year is said, while I'm on vacation, I'm truly going to treat this like a vacation. And for the first time for you, I took my phone and I would leave it in the garage (gasps) and wouldn't check it again until like 11 o'clock at night. So that sounds glorious. I know. So I'm, I'm behind a little, but I'm getting caught up and I'll be back up to speed shortly. But no, the NFL just keeps the hits coming. You know, this, this dolphin situation, um, I was just reading before I joined you, And there are a couple of things about it that I find really interesting that to say that the commissioner could say that 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 he found that there was tampering going on by an owner of an unprecedented scale. Mm -hmm. And yet the only result is, okay, you lose a first round pick and a third round pick and the owner can't work with the organization until I believe October 17th. And there's a like you take call. a couple months off. Yeah. And and look, we know this, right? Let's not let's not try and kid anyone here. When an owner is suspended from being in the in 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 the building or attending meetings, it does not mean that he or she is not still running the organization. Um, there's this thing called Zoom. There is this thing called uh, a phone that allows them to stay in contact with the team and still um, be involved in the day-to-day operations. So for me, I don't think this was enough. When Again, when you talk about unprecedented tampering over a several year period, wow. you know. And then the other thing in there that I found interesting is that the league says its investigation found that there was no credible tanking going on by the Dolphins, even though it acknowledges that Stephen Ross, the owner, said to several members of the organization, including Coach Brian Flores, that losing or draft position should take a priority over winning. And at that point, Brian Flores, uh, in the statements that have been put out, sent a letter to the organization saying how uncomfortable he was with that. And what the investigation says is that Stephen Ross never brought that up again. And Brian Flores was assured that they wanted him to build a winning culture in Miami. So a lot of disturbing things there. And again, I don't feel the punishment. 
um, fits the crime in this case. Uh, but we've come to expect that, Lindsay. The Brian Flores thing, I think, is um, to steal a, a phrase that the Haslam's used this week in their statement, which we'll get to later. It feels a little triggering because it seems as if Brian Flores is the reason that they're not getting dinged for tanking, because while the suggestion was made, um, not in a way to be taken seriously, as noted by the report, Brian Flores said, no, I'm not going to do that and continued to try to win. Now, Brian Flores is not the head coach of the Miami Dolphins for reasons that make it seem like the phrases that we keep hearing, like that he was like difficult to work with and stuff like that. Well, is this one of the ways in which he was difficult to work with that he didn't kind of take the note and maybe run with it? And so thank you, Brian Flores, for not listening to me so that my organization that you are now no longer a part of is not being punished further. But that's not how Stephen Ross uh, went with this. Instead, Stephen Ross released a statement saying essentially like that he's been vindicated of all allegations. Uh, the quote was the investigation cleared our organization on any issues related to tanking and all of Brian Flores, other allegations calls those allegations, false, malicious and defamatory. But the funny thing is I don't see any of the allegations that Brian Flores made about racist hiring practices or anything like that, pointing the finger at like his employment there. That wasn't addressed in any of this. And I felt like that was the primary message that he was trying to get across. This feels like like you. these are like the tax evasion parts of the um, things. These are the things that can be proven or not proven. And it feels weird, weird being um, maybe not the best phrase. I could come up with a different synonym for that, uh, that Stephen Ross would leave uh, this ruling kind of beating his chest in the manner in which he is. Yeah, but the thing that flies in the face of logic here is the investigation says that he told these members of the organization to place a greater priority over draft position than winning. By definition, isn't that tanking? I, I mean, I'm not I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to parse words here. But when you say to place a priority, and this is in quotes, place a priority over on draft position over winning, to me, that is the very definition of tanking. So I don't know how Stephen Ross can say that he was completely vindicated here, because in my mind and the way that I think, he wasn't. Right. So, look, they can say what they want, and, and we know how the PR spin goes. I don't think the Dolphins were vindicated, or I'm sorry, I don't think Stephen Ross was vindicated. I think he got off easy in terms of the so-called quote-unquote punishment that he, that he has received from the league. But look, Lindsay, if we're being honest here, we know that there is a different standard for punishment for owners as opposed to a player or coach. And this is yet another example. There was also phrasing in the ruling that I found interesting just from a legal sense. It said, um, you know, one such comment is a claimed offer by Mr. Ross to pay Coach Flores $100,000 to lose games. Uh, there are different recollections about the wording, timing, and context. This is the part. However phrased, such a comment was not intended or taken to be a serious offer. Like they're they're acknowledging what his intent was as if his intent is known to be a fact. 
And, and because he told you that was his intent. Right. So how Brian Flores interpreted that or how anyone else interpreted it doesn't matter because Stephen Ross can come back and say that was a joke. Just to say, just to say that within the context of draft position should take priority over winning. I don't know how you separate the two. And again, that gets back to cherry picking and parsing words. In my opinion, I think Brian Flores was very credible in what he said. And, and when you look at the evidence that has been presented to us in this investigation, um, again, I believe Stephen Ross got off easy. I just think it's funny that now we're taking people's word for things at face value. Um, you know, But we've always done that with owners as opposed to players, right? I mean, if you look at how punishment is, is, is meted out, it's always been that way. So this comes as no surprise. The punishments will, to a degree, hit them where they hurt in terms of why they were tanking, though. So even though they found that, you know, they didn't tank and we're not punishing you for this, we're punishing you for the tampering stuff. Uh, they did lose their first round draft pick in this coming draft in 2023 and a third round pick in 2024, which might have been the picks that they would use to go get a quarterback if Tua doesn't in fact work out. Right. But Which I, is right. But can I say this? The Dolphins went out this offseason and brought in a lot of talent. Okay. Whether it's Tyreek Hill, Teron Armstead, what they used in the draft, everything else. The Dolphins have an opportunity this season to be really good. So we all know how teams now look at first round picks at the end of the round. So is this really a substantial discipline if the, if the Dolphins are good and they make the playoffs and they're drafting in the bottom quarter of the draft and they're down in the mid to late 20s or 30s even? Um, is this really a strong discipline or a strong punishment for what took place? I tend to think not. And if you really wanted to make a statement, why not do both draft picks in the same year? as opposed to one in one year and one in another year. So it's, it, it's just curious sometimes how these things are determined of what the punishment will be. If you are serious, and this is just what I believe, if you are serious about there are certain standards that cannot be violated, and that applies to tampering, um, that applies to the integrity of the game in terms of, of non-tanking, Man, the punishment should be really strong to where we all sit back and we go, whoa, no one else is going to do this because they don't want it. They don't want to be hit with this, you know, and I don't get that feel from this. This is not something that makes me say, man, no team is ever going to do this again. <laughs> the uh, the tampering allegations obviously involve Tom Brady, um, at, at least in part, and Sean Payton. Do you think that this makes it almost impossible for Tom Brady to get him? Involved with the Dolphins after he is done playing in any kind of front office role? No, <laughs> no. Um, the one thing I have learned in my two plus decades of covering the NFL is that logic and reason goes out the window. And this is the most popular game sport in our country, if not the world. I know soccer is, 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 is some would argue, is number one. Um, and therefore, as we say, it is a Teflon league and nothing sticks. So if Tom Brady chooses to get involved with the Dolphins sometimes after he's done playing, 
I don't see why he wouldn't. And I don't think that there would be any uproar about him getting involved with the team. I feel like from a cynical point of view, there are people. There's that word. I know. Um, And I might fall into this camp (laughs) at this point. You might be able to tell that from my tone so far. But there are going to be people who look at the way that the punishment was meted out for this and say it's interesting that they found evidence of tampering and chose to um, hand down a punishment for that but not the tanking specifically because the tanking calls into question the integrity of the game. Whereas the tampering kind of feels like, okay, they broke some rules, but it doesn't actually affect the NFL from a larger picture standpoint. Tanking does. Now that calls into question the credibility of the actual contests. And that's a problem for the NFL, as we saw with the Calvin Ridley punishment. Um, So there's, Part of me that feels like I don't know how seriously to take the results of the investigation because they kind of match what's best for the NFL and also give them an out and a way to say, like, we handled this. See, look, punishment, but it's not the one that actually hurts us. Is there something within the findings of the report or investigation that you could point to to suggest that that is not the case? No. No, I mean, when you look at the findings, again, as I've said to you, I don't think the punishment was strong enough. And there is supposed to be nothing more central to the NFL than protecting the shield and the integrity of the game. And when you stop and when you talk about purposely, at least even discussing um, throwing games or losing games intentionally, it should never be done even in a joking manner by someone that high up in an organization. And so to find that the investigation states that the owner said he wanted to place a priority over draft position on draft position over winning clearly calls into question the integrity of the game. So that's why I think that that is a much bigger deal to me. And the penalty should have been much harsher for that than tampering. Um, tampering has gone on in the NFL probably since the NFL has existed. And we all know, even as it relates to free agency and things, there's now this legal tampering period. The tampering goes on before that. We all know that. And, and it's sort of accepted within the NFL as sort of the, the way the business is done. But again, when we're, what gets to the heart of integrity of the game is something like losing on purpose. And no owner should ever even joke about that. Um, as, as Stephen Ross is saying, or, or this, this, this story that has come out says his intent was not, in, he was not serious, that basically he was joking. Well, the joint practices between the Buccaneers and the Dolphins will be pretty interesting next week. Um, I, will you be attending any of those? I know that you're going to head out on some camp travels. Yeah, um, no, I'm, I'm starting out tomorrow, uh, Hall of Fame then heading over to the Browns, then up to the Steelers, uh, home for a minute, and then back out to joint workouts between the Vikings and Niners. And believe it or not, I asked to go to a joint workout between the Falcons and Jaguars um, uh, later in the month because I truly believe that the Jaguars um, are building something. And I think, you know, in our business, Lindsay, what happens a lot of times is that media outlets will want to wait until the team is good and then think they're going to parachute in and everyone's going to roll out the red carpet and this and the other. But 
me, I approach it. I think you have to do your work beforehand. And, you know, as Russell Wilson likes to say, the preparation, the separations in the preparation. So I think you have to start building those relationships early. And, and um, like I say, I think the Jags are going to be one of those up and coming teams. And so I'd like to get a look at them early and, and see if what I believe, um, what I think is, is, is actually what will take place. It's funny you say that because I actually think the Jaguars are one of the more interesting teams this offseason. If I was in a position to pick the camps that I, you know, got to go to, um, it would be a lot of the ones that people didn't want to go to for the most part, because I feel like, you know, from a TV standpoint, it's, you know, the bill, you're going to cover the the hits. You're going to cover the ones with the the star quarterbacks for the most part. And then in Kansas City and in Green Bay, you kind of get both both sides of the coin, you get a team that is not rebuilding, but in a position to remake their image and has question marks that are legitimately interesting from a journalistic standpoint, but also it's sexy team. That's also expected to be good. The ones that are the most interesting to me are the ones where I feel like they're on the precipice, just like you're saying. And weirdly, the dolphins are actually completely that team for me. Also, I think that the number of pieces that they acquired this offseason. And then the question that surrounds like, how will Mike McDaniel do as a head coach? How will he use those pieces? It's a way more interesting story to me. And then I'm kind of interested. I don't think the Falcons are going to be any good this year, but I'm kind of interested in like, how are they going to make this right? Like who are the people there? Because it's so, so unclear <laughs> as to who their weapons might be and how they might use them. And so I think that that's interesting that you say that that's a camp that you had requested to go to. You are going to go to the Browns camp. So that should be an interesting one in light of recent news. Yeah. Um, I will get there. Let's see. I will not see them though until after the league has made its determination on whether or not it will appeal the, the, ruling of the disciplinary officer, Sue Robinson. Wait, when do we know when that is likely to happen? Is there a they time frame? To, yeah, they have to announce it by Thursday. They have to make that decision by Thursday. So they have three days after the ruling okay. to make a decision on whether or not they're going to appeal. So we will know by Thursday um, whether or not the NFL is appealing um, the ruling. I've already gone on record saying I think they should, the league should. Um, I don't know if it will because it's a it's a tricky situation to it to some extent for the league, as you know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I will get there on the weekend because I'm, I'm at the Hall of Fame first um, from Wednesday to Friday or Saturday. So I'll get there over the weekend after some of the some of this has died down a little bit, potentially. Were you surprised by the ruling? It's not so much I was surprised by the ruling. I was surprised by the report um, that and I always thought, for the most part, that he would get anywhere from six to eight games. Uh, there was something in me that just said, that's how it's going to go, right? Like, here's my expectation. How right. far down should I lower it? That's where we're going to land? Oh, absolutely. I thought it yeah. would be six to eight games. Mm -hmm. But when you read her report, I say to myself, I can't understand how you come out then six to eight games. Yeah. Because number one, look, let's go through a sort of step by step. There are a number of things that really bothered me or made me uncomfortable in this report. Number one, it's it's Sue Robinson distinguishing between nonviolent sexual assault and sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, 
that just really threw me as if to say, if there's no videotape, then we don't know that it really happened. You know, when we talk about domestic abuse and those sorts of things. Well, it also indicates that if he didn't punch you or strangle you or something like that, his other unwanted behavior does not fit my description of what is violent. And it is less offensive. Right. Right. Which Mm -hmm. just blows my mind. Number one on that. Number two is the language she used in there where she called him use words like predator, predator. Egregious. That's the second one I'm coming to egregious. And so then, and this is the, the, the key point for me, she writes that the NFL proved by its standard that he committed sexual assault, right? right? But says six to eight games. She writes in there that his actions were intentional, that he was not there for a massage, that he wanted these women to touch his penis. And yet it's six to eight games. Can I back up there for a second? Because I think that that's a really important point before we get into how she pivots into the way she came up with the punishment. I think that because she came up with the punishment she did, and frankly, this is what a lot of people want to believe. What I keep seeing on social media and probably elsewhere, but for me, it's mostly it pops up in the comment section on Twitter and in my mentions every time I talk about this subject matter is innocent until proven guilty. People say, oh, this is the punishment because he did not do it because he is innocent. And I think it can't be it can't be stated strongly enough. She does not believe he's innocent. She did this report and specifically ruled in a way that makes it clear that she believes the accusations, that there was enough evidence for her to approach the punishment phase of the decision as if he was guilty. And those words that you used, predatory, egregious, and then she pivots into the punishment. But I just want to mention that and really hammer that home because there are so many people that look at the uh, the severity of the punishment, the fact that it's not as strong as a lot of people expected as reason to believe that nothing was proven. And that's the most frustrating part of all of this is I feel like people continue to prove with the evidence that they could potentially use that something believable actually occurred. Every step of the process, that has been the case in mm-hmm. terms of meeting the definition that can be met legally. But see, people also keep forgetting this is not a court of law, what is taking place here. And for two grand juries not to indict him did not mean that he was innocent. There is a different standard of proof in a court of law. That's all that is. And so a prosecutor has to decide whether or not he or she can actually prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. And if they feel that they can't, then they don't go forward. It doesn't mean nothing happened. It doesn't mean he didn't do it. And so I wish people would stop trying to equate a court of law with this investigation by the NFL. Look, she says, again, she writes, the NFL proved by its definition of sexual assault that he committed sexual assault. Well, if he committed it by their definition, then it should be more than six to eight games. And for her to say that she's relying on precedent here. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. And it, the other thing that, that bothers me in this whole process is the league presented only four cases. 
right? And Tony Busby, the attorney for the women, said he had many more cases they weren't interested in and didn't speak to him about. They just presented the four, okay? She is treating the four as a group, as a collective. And I'm saying, Jameis Winston got three games for improperly touching an Uber driver. Mm -hmm. Deshaun Watson had, what, 24 civil cases against him. You took four cases before four cases were taken before the disciplinary officer, and she found that he was guilty in her eyes of the behavior as outlined by the NFL. So those four cases should amount to only three more games of what Jameis Winston had gotten for improperly touching an Uber driver. That the, none of this, none of this balances out to me. The other why, thing, I, why were there? Why did they bring such a small number of cases I don't to know. Robinson, considering the number? Because I think that's another thing that people use in their ammo is they think, well, they only brought this many because these are the only num the only ones that were even remotely credible that could stand up to it, and all of the other ones must not have been credible, and that's why they didn't present them. And so, I'm curious to know why they chose those. It's a great question. And when we get an opportunity to, to, to address the NFL, we can ask that question. And I love knowing that you actually will. <laughs> the other thing, though, that, that really disturbs me in, 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 in this, Lindsay, is, and I know this doesn't get talked about a lot, but one of the things I try and do as a journalist is people in power, you are supposed to help hold accountable, right, to whatever their words, their beliefs, their principles are that they tell you, that they espouse, we are supposed to hold them to that. So when the NFL tells us that it is committed to mental health awareness and that that is important, yada, yada, yada. And I'm saying, I, I, I still remember to this day watching that Real Sports report yes. on this subject where Ashley Solis was interviewed. And I'm saying, if you can't see the psychological trauma she has experienced from her experience with Deshaun Watson, there's really no reason for us to talk. Yes. And so I'm saying that this has to factor into the equation as well. People, I understand the discussion about showing women that, that you care about women and all of that, but also in the bigger picture of mental health that you keep talking about, we don't focus on the fact that the, the discriminatory practices by NFL owners against coaches of color how that impacts their mental health. And as I've outlined a story I wrote a while back, I can give you a coach who told me he left the league specifically because he couldn't get an opportunity to climb that ladder, even as an offensive coordinator, and tells me a decade later, a decade later, he said it stays with you every day. Yeah. So you're going to tell me that, that his mental health doesn't matter? And, and so the practices of these owners and what they the, do to these coaches? The women in Washington. Exactly. Their mental health doesn't matter. Going to a workplace where they feel traumatized every single day, but want to keep their job, Absolutely. you know, so they put up with whatever they need to put up with in order to remain employed in what a lot of people would deem as a dream job. Like you're supposed to leave just because the people can't can't behave appropriately in the workplace. The, the, I think that's a big part of that, you know, but. But the system's not set up to protect any of these people. It just isn't. And I think that that's that that's a thing. And, and I understand that th I think that that's a harder thing to attack. Right. Because in this country, we really want to protect innocent until proven guilty. 
Mm-hmm. And then there are admittedly a lot of gray areas of things. Sexual assault is one. Harassment is another. Things that are hard to prove, right? Like there very rarely is some sort of smoking gun of physical evidence. And yeah. like back to the Deshaun Watson case, there's there's no camera in the room. There will never be a camera in the room for obvious reasons. People, you're getting a massage. The client is naked and and covered up by a towel. It's it's not taped because how creepy would that be? None of us want our massages to be taped, right? So like that puts them in a position of how how do they ever prove it? And in this case, there are are lots of anybody who's read any of the Jenny Vrentis uh, reporting about this or watched the real sports that you mentioned. There's lots of corroborating evidence. There's lots of examples for almost all of these stories and certainly enough of them to feel comfortable saying in that case, I think that something happened there. And in that case, I think something happened there because there's a trail of text messages that happen immediately after where they then text a friend and say, this is what happened. And then the friend replies, I've heard that before. That's weird. Here's how I'm going to handle it. And that happens enough where how else are you going to corroborate that? Like that's the best case scenario in terms of evidence in a case like this. So here's my thing from the very beginning. I tried to stay out of this until I I saw more evidence and learned more about it. I didn't just want to make an emotional reaction to it. Mm -hmm. But when someone goes on a social media and seeks out more than 60 women for massages, social media, 60 plus women, non, some of them non-licensed, you are not doing that for therapeutic massages, okay? That was my first thing. The second thing here is, I feel like the Houston Texans have gotten off really easy in this thing. Because number one, they set him up at the hotel to have a place where he could have these massages outside of the team staff, right? And then when it's clear that something right isn't necessarily going on to then give him or instruct him on how to use an NDA. Mm. The minute you have to have them sign an NDA, that should have set set off alarm bells that something isn't right here. And I feel like the Texans should also be held accountable in this situation as well. Because they paid they didn't they settle 30. They, They. They paid money to 30 different people. They didn't do that to be nice. And their statement made it sound like, hey, we just we know how hard these things can be for people like we're just really thoughtful and empathetic that anyone's going through something. What is the something that they're going through? What are we just no? I just I just again, none of this sits well with me. None of this makes me I'm not comfortable with any of it. and. And again, I intentionally tried to stay out of this for a long time because I didn't just want to react emotionally to what was being said. And look, I'm not going to sit here and say that every woman who accused Deshaun Watson went through what she says she went through. Okay, I'm not. Um, But I think that there are enough. Whose testimony to me is credible and one is enough. It doesn't have to be multiple women for one woman to have gone through this for Ashley Solis to have gone through this, to step back in the middle of that massage and say, whoa, you know, what's going on here? And to start crying. 
And for him to acknowledge it by texting her afterwards, what more do you need? So I just watched that real sports again yesterday and I started crying watching Ashley. So he's crying. And I think part of it too, was just like yesterday was, uh, yesterday was a hard one for me because I kept thinking like, you feel like you're dealing with a certain set of facts and like reasonable thought and a rational approach. And then, and again, everyone always says when things like this pop up, you should stay off Twitter, right? Like, because that's not the forum for that, but it's just to get assaulted by constant comment after comment of people saying he's innocent. That's why you guys are on a witch hunt and all of this stuff. And I'm just like, I've just done the research and there's so much evidence that would lead a reasonable person to feel this. And I feel like I'm going crazy. Like I'm living in a world where what seems to so obviously be the case is not accepted as the case by everybody. And it's just, it's exhausting. Yeah. See, I don't engage. I know. I've learned on social media now that I don't engage with those that I don't follow or rarely I should say. Because my mental health is important to me. Yeah. And there are people out there who just want to argue for the sake of arguing, or there are people out there who their football is all that matters and nothing else matters. And I just don't have time or energy for it or the the, the psychological bandwidth to, to go back and forth with them on this. I do understand, though, um, I do understand a wariness on the part of a lot of people to believe that a black man accused of something absolutely is I understand the desire to come to his defense absolutely because historically, obviously a lot of black men have been accused of things and it, I can understand why that would be a sensitive subject matter and triggering for a lot of people. The thing that I have tried to be careful with though, is I, I understand that. But then that does not mean that you have no responsibility to look into the potential and the possibility, because the same is also true for women historically in this country. We're dealing with like two minority groups that have historically not been treated as equal by the court system, by public opinion, all of these different things. And so it feels a little bit at times in in this particular case where those two things are are warring factions. And I find that there's a lot of hypocrisy that comes out in that that is is frustrating for me. And I don't quite know how to take on the conversation. And and your point is well taken. You just don't in Twitter with people that you don't know. Right. Like you take it on with somebody that you do know in person and try to find out, like, where are you coming from here? And can can we come to a collective understanding of like something that that we can agree about. Yeah. I I mean, look, everything that you're saying there is real. And that's one of the reasons I intentionally did not speak on this when it first came out. I said, I just don't know. I don't know the facts. Um, I know what both sides are saying at this point, um, but still that's not enough. Let's wait until there's an investigation and that sort of thing. And then I can start to make um, some, some informed conclusions, at least in my mind about how I feel about this and whatnot. But again, when I look at the evidence here, and again, we don't know everything. I I, I say that up front. 
But again, when you as a star quarterback in the NFL go outside of the team staff and you seek out more than 60 women on social media, some of whom are not even licensed massage therapists, and you take some of them to hotel to this hotel in a room and you ask some of them to sign NDAs and whatnot, and you and now you hear from these women and there is a pattern of behavior. These are not isolated isolated incidents. There is a pattern of behavior. And then we know that you have had relationships with some of these women and you can say it's consensual. And some have said it was consensual, but still you were supposed to be going there or having um, um, these sessions as therapeutic massages to help get your body right to play in the NFL. Look, as I tweeted yesterday, Deshaun's a great player. He's done a lot of good in the community. I'm not in any way trying to minimize any of that. But good people do bad things and they need to be held accountable. And the one thing that I hope is that he learns from this. Sadly, we have not heard him express any remorse in this. And in fact, in the initial press conference with the Browns, when he was asked if he regretted anything, he said no. (laughs) How he... Why he would have, why he would be allowed to speak on that, and such a fundamental question, not have a response to it. I, you know what's fun, and, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't go there in my brain, but I do as a media person. Um, and then the Haslam statement yesterday led me to think this again. I am wondering, like, who's running crisis management in Cleveland? Because they just seemed the questions that he was not prepared to answer that were so obviously going to be asked back in June, I believe it was. I I couldn't believe that they as a team didn't prepare him for that situation. Now, it's his responsibility, right? He uh, created this situation. And one could argue that he should just go up there and um, answer honestly. But like, that's not realistic. This is a corporate situation where they've invested a lot of money into him. And I couldn't believe that the team didn't invest like a hardcore crisis management person to come in and prep him for that interview. The only thing I will say to that is I can't say that they didn't because sometimes, Mm -hmm. as you know, people go off script, even if they've been prepared. So I don't know fully what went on behind the scenes in terms of preparing him for that. I just know when that one particular question came up, He answered it in the worst way possible. And let me say this quickly about I I believe the Haslam's are getting off really easy here as well. (laughs) For them to say that they did their due diligence and they take sexual assault against women seriously. This is the same family that signed Kareem Hunt after he was caught on videotape literally kicking a woman. So if that is the foundation that we're going to build this case on, don't tell me that this is about you've done your investigation and you couldn't find this and Sean's a good, good, good person, yada, yada, yada. What you have shown me is that winning football games trumps everything else. And if a player can help you win a football game, you are then willing to bring him into your organization. I'm sorry. We talk about pattern of behavior with Deshaun. There is a pattern of behavior with the Hassan family here as it relates to this issue specifically. So I don't want to hear that they care seriously about this issue 
when your actions speak louder than your words. And then for you to come out in that statement and talk about people being triggered. Mm -hmm. Are you serious? I mean, that was so insulting and so demeaning. Yep. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding me. I would respect you more if you just told me, you know what? I'm in the business of winning football games. Mm -hmm. All that other stuff doesn't matter. That's not on me. My job is to put together the best football team I, I can put together. I might not like it, but I would at least respect your honesty. But don't sit up here, as you say, and be hypocritical to use your word about their actions, their words saying one thing and their actions doing something else. We know that Deshaun is remorseful, that this situation has caused much heartache to many. That was also in the statement. And I thought it was very interestingly worded because it didn't say we know that Deshaun is remorseful, like in a way that acknowledges any guilt. Right. Like it, because he has conceded that or he's contended that that nothing happened and he has no regrets and he didn't do anything wrong. So. I feel like that statement has triggered a lot of people. And I almost take it to believe that like they know that he's remorseful, that this situation has caused heartache to many in the sense that he is sorry that he's bringing all this baggage with him. Like, I'm sorry, Mr. And Mrs. Haslam, that your organization, which went way out of its way to come get me and bring this situation knowingly to Cleveland is putting you in the position that it is putting you in. I feel like that's more likely the sorry that they've received. But here, here's the other thing, Lindsay. What have we heard from the Haslams, from Andrew Barry, from Kevin Stefanski? We're going to let the process play out. We are going to accept the findings of the investigation, right? All those sorts of things. So now the report comes out and the report says, yes, he did this. Mm -hmm. Yes, he committed sexual assault by the definition of the NFL. Those sorts of things. So my question to the Haslams, to Andrew Barry, to Kevin Stefanski, if you accept the findings of the report, as you said you would, and that report now says that Deshaun Watson is a predator, how do you feel now? You're not going to get an answer. <laughs> That's okay. I, you know, a lot of times, as you know, in this business, Lindsay, you know, you're not going to get an answer, but it doesn't mean the question can't be asked or shouldn't be asked. Getting back to Sue Robinson and the punishment and the way she landed on the punishment. Um, there were a few parts that we haven't talked about here that I think are interesting. First, she she references him as a first time offender, which I find offensive. And I know people listening will be shocked that I find something offensive about this. But uh, I feel like at some point, if you have 30 people that you're paying settlements to and uh, 24 legal cases at some point along the way, just because it's one thing that you have done 24 different times or accused of doing, at some point it stops being a first time offender, especially if in the same report, you find his behavior to be predatory. That is literally in contradiction with the phrase first time offender. So I find that a weird way for her to look at all of this through um, the prism of first time offender. Uh, and then also what she, she should have said, it's the first time it's been brought to the league's attention. 
and this particular um, string of cases is the first time he has been on our radar, right? Like what she's really saying there is he, we've not had any problem with him in the past. Correct. Absolutely. And even mentioned all the things that he had done positive in terms of community work and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So no question. Um, Just because it's the first time we learned of it doesn't mean it's the first time that it's happened. Yeah. She focuses on um, in her calculation of punishment. She focuses on the precedent that she wants to set of making the NFL define punishments. Um, And in focusing on that, I think she inadvertently set a precedent of this kind of repeated behavior is worthy of a six game suspension. Because as she says, there wasn't another case exactly like it. So I don't understand how she doesn't think that she couldn't look at the precedents that were set and then up it from there. And um, the fact that she focuses on making the NFL defined punishments is also interesting and problematic for me because she wants the NFL to better define prohibited behavior. That makes sense. Um, So that people could predict the consequences of their behavior, as she says. But I can't think of a scenario where someone would think to name check uh, ejaculating on massage therapists who don't ask you to is not acceptable behavior, according to the CBA. And also, um, I'm wondering who believes that if this specific behavior was defined in the CBA, that he would have then calculated his punishment and not done it. It's all, it's all ridiculous. I mean, it really is. Here's the thing that's fascinating to me about all of this. And I'm not just saying this now. I said it in the beginning when this came up um, in the last CBA negotiation. I always thought it was a farce to have a disciplinary officer from this standpoint. Number one, you have now put the NFL in the role of being prosecutors. They are now going in arguing a case instead of hearing a case, right? From Jump Street. That's a good point. And so now they are they are mm-hmm. the prosecutors. And now the judge rules against them. So what's the alternative? Man, I don't like it. I'm going to appeal it. Who are you going to appeal it to? Yeah. Same people who are prosecuting him, right? Me. So is it, is it really <laughs> a fair process there? But the other thing I'm fascinated to see is how the NFL walks this line here now where you have this former federal judge who is a woman who rules on a case involving alleged sexual misconduct and you agreed to have her hear this case. And in her, exactly, now are you going to mansplain it to her? Ruling, you say we don't like it and we're going to we're going to we're going to change the, the, the outcome. How you gonna how are you gonna explain that? Right. I want to hear how you walk that line. So right. it's it's right. it's fascinating. Yeah, they've backed themselves into the exact corner that I think in many ways they were trying to avoid by bringing in an independent person. I feel like at this point it's kind of an unwinnable situation unless they raise their hand and like make if they spin it very carefully as to say like we created this argument. We believe this happened. I don't know how you do that, though, because people are blaming the NFL, right? Like, even though 
it was ultimately Sue Robinson. They're saying the NFL blew it again, right? Even though the NFL in this case was the prosecutor, quote unquote, I don't think that that's unwarranted, by the way. I think the NFL deserves all of the smoke, but it is an interesting situation. It is, but I would say this, if I were in their shoes, Mm -hmm. I would say, judge, in your report, you have written that he committed sexual assault. You have written that he had a pattern of predatory behavior. You have written that his behavior was so egregious, it was beyond anything the NFL had seen before. So based on all of that, we have the power now to say, you know what? We will set a new standard and we will impose greater discipline. Look, I never believed that the NFL should have an indefinite suspension over Deshaun Watson. I felt it should have been a year. And then he comes back next year, pending that there are no further, you know, things that come up that 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 would change um, the tenor or the scope of of what's taken place. So I, I felt it was wrong to say indefinite. I think there should it should be defined. But I think the NFL, if the NFL were to say what I just said to you, that we are using the judge's report mm-hmm. to say why we are increasing the discipline. I think most people would be okay with that. And if Sue Robinson didn't like it, well, Sue will replace you with someone else. How about this? How about you said this? You said that we met the, that he did this. You said it was egregious. You said it was predatory. You said we've been too lenient in past precedents. And that part of the problem here is that we set a precedent that you felt like in this situation, you had a hard time surpassing because we had failed in the past. We're not going to fail anymore. We believe that when we say that we have, uh, wait, what's the phrasing? We strongly condemn this behavior. Now we are going to meet that statement with a punishment that matches those words. And we are going to set a new precedent. They could come out and say, you said we've failed and that the reason that you couldn't give him a stronger punishment is because we haven't given strong enough punishments in the past. But see, her We're point, gonna change her that counter right to that would be, you did not give the players fair notice that this change was coming. And that's what she argued in her report, as I remember it, is she is saying that, that there was not enough prior notice given to the players that this type of discipline was possible. To which I I understand a lawyer getting wrapped up in that. I understand that, it, but that feels like getting bogged down in legal stuff. And like you're not Lindsay, seeing the that's forest. My point through the I was trees. say to you is my response to that would be, I don't care. Right is right, yep. wrong is wrong. I don't care. You have told me in your report he did these things, that he committed sexual assault by our definition, that his behavior was predatory, that his behavior was egregious. I don't need to hear any more. Period. And if someone doesn't like it, I have a I have a saying, but I won't use it. You're the but, best. You know. <laughs> Why stop there? Here's what I want to. Here's what I want to ask you um, as my last question, and this is uh, me personal 
question for you, because I think it's, it's worth noting, like I did at the top that you sit here and have this conversation in a very unguarded way. And you are an employee of the NFL. When you talk the way that you do, and you say the things that you truly think, and you do speak truth to power in this case, uh, your boss says, um, how is that? How is that received by your bosses? Do you get pushback and do you fear that there will be repercussions for saying the things that you think, which are critical? Yeah, I'll, I'll start the with company? the latter one first. No, I don't fear repercussions. Um, our job as a journalist, as we talked about earlier, is to hold those in power accountable and to speak truth to power. And, and all I try and do is ask the questions that I think the public would want asked. That's all I do. And I believe on a very basic level, that's what our job is in many ways, is to be the conduit from the public to those people in power and to ask those questions that your audience would want to ask. That's it. And if it gets me in trouble, it gets me in trouble. And it's not like I'm trying to get in trouble, but I believe I've been doing this long enough that hopefully I've built up enough um, credibility that people understand I'm not just I'm not when I ask certain things, I'm not just asking them to, to get responses on social media or, you're not, oh, I, you're I not mean, I'm, I'm genuine in what I'm asking. As far as with the company and some of the things, look, we've had some disagreements over things I have tried to write and how it is written. And we go back and forth on it. And there are times that I have said, I feel like, the editing has been heavy handed. But at the end of the day, we come to a, a meeting or a middle ground where we can both be satisfied with what we're putting out there. And I give a lot of credit. Um, and I think this is really important. I give a lot of credit to the editors in the newsroom who allow me to address some of these topics um, and to say what I feel needs to be said. Because it would be very easy for them to say, you know what, man, I don't want to deal with that. And you're making my life miserable because I, I got to answer to these people. You know, the thing that I'll be honest with you, I was disappointed in Roger Goodell that when I asked him that question, we have never talked. We, we, since then, we have never had a conversation about it. And, and when Steve Wash and I were doing a podcast, we tried three separate times to get him to come on the podcast to talk about some of these issues. And we never got to him directly, but we went through um, his top human resources person who oversees a lot of the diversity issues. Didn't happen. We went through the head of communications for the NFL and had someone in their meeting, internal meetings, ask about Roger coming on our podcast. And I was told it was met with crickets. So, I think people sometimes act as if I am attacking him or even attacking owners, and, and I'm not. Here's what I believe, right or wrong. I believe that the NFL is the number one sport in this country. I believe that it is so insanely popular that there is a social contract between the league and the public for the league to do right and to be everything that it says it is. So when you say to me things like, diversity, equity, inclusion are core principles of the NFL, I should be allowed to hold you accountable to that. You shouldn't be afraid to answer to that. When you say that women matter and mental health matters 
and those things, if we see something that's contradictory to that, we should be allowed to ask you about that and, and, and to have you explain yourself on it. Because maybe we're wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. That's okay. Right. Tell me I'm wrong. Explain to me how I'm wrong. That's the thing, too, that I feel like is, is such an important point and, and is such a strong part of journalism. I've always approached conversations like that with this in mind. A lot of people out there share this view. So the best way that you can change their mind is by answering the question. And if you have compelling evidence, oftentimes I'm sure you actually do. I'm sure you're not doing this for all the underhanded reasons that we think, but like a little bit of transparency would go a long way toward convincing people that this uh, thing that they've conjured up in their mind is not actually happening, that it's it's reached the point that it has for a reason that is different than what they are attributing to you. And you can only make that clear by having that conversation, by answering those questions and by approaching these subjects with some degree of transparency. And that's the biggest thing that I think that the NFL messes up is that when Roger Goodell stands there at press conferences, he says things that are clearly not transparent and clearly like could prove we could prove them to be untrue in terms of behaviors that don't match the statements that they're making. And I just feel like if there was some degree of authenticity that was brought to the table, that they could go a long way toward clearing up a lot of the ill feelings about, you know, the way that they approach things. But I also think that what I've learned in the last few years is that that is not necessary for them to continue to run a successful business. We will not hold them accountable as consumers of the NFL. We will continue to consume the product. We will continue to go to games. We will continue to spend all of the money to buy the cable outlets that run their, all of it. We're going to do all of it because we love the product. So it doesn't really matter what they say or do. We will continue You're to right. consume it. And they know that. And they know that. So, look, I've, I've always said this. It, it's funny because, um, as you know, and I'm, I'm staying on this topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion because I think it's so important. And um, for me and however many years left I have in this business, it's something that I want to focus on in terms of giving a voice to the voiceless, these coaches and, and, and personnel people who can't speak for themselves for fear of retribution. Um, but I just, I just want people to do right. You know, it's not that hard and we don't have to insult people's intelligence. And if I could tell you and others, which I wish I could, some of the stories I hear behind the scenes, um, I know this matters to Roger Goodell. I know the people he has spoken to behind the scenes coaches, personnel, people. I know some of the conversations that have been had that I can't report because I have promised not to report. It matters to him. And, and, and as, we, as we go to the I Hall like of Fame that. this week, part of it is legacy too. This will be discussed about him one day when his name comes up for the Hall of Fame. So I'm not saying that's the reason he's concerned about it, but it is a factor. So... Oh, there's a story I want to tell you so badly and I just can't right now. But um, but yeah, so that's where I'm at. I'm, I just I just believe it's important to. To ask the questions that the public wants answered and to try and hold people accountable, 
not necessarily, it's not even holding them accountable. It's holding them to their words. You know, what you say, are you walking the walk? That's, and that's important to me. And, you know, I had a recent conversation with um, someone high up in the NFL where I said to them what I said to you, that I believe the NFL should be a beacon. I believe the NFL should set the standard in, in when it comes to certain issues, whether it's DEI or whether it's, you know, the treatment of women in the workplace, all of these things. I believe the NFL should be at the top of that because everyone looks up to the NFL. You know, the numbers bear it out when we talk about viewership, whatnot. I believe that there is a social responsibility with that. I really do. And maybe that's naive on my part, but I believe it. And I believe the NFL can be better. I believe it should be better. And I don't think there's any, anything wrong with striving to be better and demanding that it be better. Jim, I couldn't think of anyone I would have rather had on the show this week, considering the news um, that was discussed. So thank you so much for making yourself available. And please come back some other time so that we can actually just talk about. Oh, no, Lindsay, you know that. I, I, I appreciate you so much. I remember when I first got to the network, I told you this and I'll tell your viewers. The thing was so great. I'm not a TV guy. Never been a TV guy, no matter how much folks have tried at times to make me. And I get really uncomfortable sometimes on camera, but you always made it so easy and so conversational where I felt comfortable sitting there having a discussion about these topics. So, so yeah, whenever you need me, just call me and um, I'll be here. You can find more from Jim on Twitter at Jim Trotter underscore NFL. And of course, you can find his work all over the NFL media properties, NFL Network and NFL.com. Another thing that I wanted to discuss with him, but we kind of ran out of time, was a different punishment decision that we'll be keeping our eye on moving forward. And that is the one related to Alvin Kamara, who is facing a misdemeanor charge of conspiracy to commit battery and also a felony charge of battery resulting in substantial bodily harm. Essentially, he's being accused, along with a few other people, of beating the shit out of someone in Las Vegas the night before the Pro Bowl. Like, orbital fracture in his right eye, ended up unconscious. Allegedly, Kamara continued to hit him after he was unconscious. And so there's an assumption that he will face NFL dis discipline at some point. But so far, the NFL has decided to let the case play out in the courts and then respond after there is more legal information that comes forward. So that brings me to this week and why I'm talking about it now. Kamara was supposed to have a court date on Monday, August 1st. It was a pretrial hearing, but it was delayed for the third time in this case. It was delayed to September 29th, which means that the actual resolution of this case has been obviously pushed back as well. Since it's a pretrial hearing, that means they haven't even set a date for the trial. And since our legal system doesn't move all that rapidly, it means that the trial probably won't happen until the end of the season, if at all this season, which means that if the NFL continues to wait for legal resolution before handing down any type of punishment on their end, he will probably play for a good majority of the season, if not all of it. Unless, and this is a huge unless, a tape comes out. This could change everything. 
According to police, there is a security camera that caught the entire incident on tape. And so far, that tape has not been leaked. It is not publicly available. When it becomes publicly available, either in the trial or if it's leaked ahead of the trial, the NFL, in my opinion, is going to face a lot of pressure to do something. It's a bad look to have a guy playing in a football game right after we've watched him beat someone up on tape, especially if the beating is as severe as the charges allege. It is not the headline the NFL would prefer. Whatever the circumstances surrounding it that might contextualize the behavior that I'm guessing Kamara's team wants to come out in the trial, there's no doubt that a video of a player going ham on a potentially unconscious person is a less than desirable visual for the NFL. So I'm curious to see what happens with the tape, which I assume the NFL has seen. If they haven't, my guess is that they're trying to hold on to plausible deniability. But as we saw in the case of Ray Rice, that defense did not work then for them, and I do not think it would work for them now, which is why I'm curious to see how they handle this. They cannot afford, in my opinion, to look like they're responding after the fact to public pressure if a video that is unsavory comes out, since most of us will reasonably assume that they could have gotten a copy of that video and will reasonably conclude that if the video is bad enough to warrant punishment after seeing it, that they should have come to that conclusion on their own and not because we've collectively pressured them to come to that conclusion. This is what happened with Ray Rice, what undermined the things that they said about not tolerating the behavior that he displayed and what puts them in a bit of a bind right now. In my opinion, they have to be proactive with regard to the case and the tape because the tape will come out. So I think if they find an explanation that makes the content of the tape easier for the public to metabolize, they need to lead the charge on establishing that explanation. But I'm not sure they will, for all of the reasons that we've discussed already today. Anyway, I look forward to next week's show when we can talk about actual football, like I hope. I like pause there because it's actually, I don't, I can't promise that. <laughs> anyway, I definitely hope we'll talk about actual football and not the headlines surrounding football next week. I've got a lot of thoughts about the stuff I've seen coming out of training camps, uh, but I thought it was best to put those thoughts on the back burner this week. I hope that you agree with that decision. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, the subjects discussed, or the show itself. You can find me on Twitter at Lindsay underscore Rhodes. I'm Lindsay Rhodes NFL on Instagram. Huge thanks to the people you do not hear on this show who work very hard to bring it to you. Andrew Emmer, who is our producer. Marissa Rivas, who is the director of sports podcasts for SiriusXM. And Steve Cohen, who is the SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting. The NFL Roadshow is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. Hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and I will catch you back here again next week. Have a good one, everybody. Serious XM Podcasts.